Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Uh, this is part two of The Nameless Offspring by Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, part one was last week, so if you are listening to this now, you should go back. If this is their first episode, you should go back and listen to part one, because otherwise you're spoiling it for yourself. Okay. I don't really have anything else to say in the intro, uh, so please uh, feel free to leave me a rating and a review on iTunes, and let's get on with the episode. I was awakened by a loud knocking on my door, a knocking in which even my sleep-confused senses could recognize the imperative and urgent. It must have been close upon midday, and feeling guilty at having overslept so egregiously, I ran to the door and opened it. The old manservant, Harper, was standing without, and his tremulous, grief-broken manner told me before he spoke that something of dire import had occurred. "'I regret to tell you, Mr. Caldane,' he quavered, "'that Sir John is dead.' He did not answer my knock as usual, so I made bold to enter his room. He must have died early this morning. Inexpressibly shocked by his announcement, I recalled the single groan I had heard in the grey beginning of dawn. My host, perhaps, had been dying at that very moment. I recalled, too, the detestable nightmare scratching. Unavoidably, I wondered if the groan had been occasioned by fear as well as by physical pain. Had the strain and suspense of listening to that hideous sound brought on the final paroxysm of Sir John's malady? I could not be sure of the truth, but my brain seethed with awful and ghastly conjectures. With the futile formalities that one employs on such occasions, I tried to condole with the aged servant, and offered him such assistance as I could in making the necessary arrangements for the disposition of his master's remains. Since there was no telephone in the house, I volunteered to find a doctor who would examine the body and sign the death certificate. The old man seemed to feel a singular relief and gratitude. "'Thank you, sir,' he said fervently. Then, as if in explanation, "'I don't want to leave, Sir John. I promised him that I'd keep a close watch over his body.' He went on to speak of Sir John's desire for cremation. It seemed that the baronet had left explicit directions for the building of a pyre of driftwood on the hill behind the hall, the burning of his remains on this pyre, and the sowing of his ashes on the fields of the estate.' These directions he had enjoined and empowered the servant to carry out as soon after death as possible. No one was to be present at the ceremony except Harper and the hired pallbearers, and Sir John's nearer relatives, none of whom lived in the vicinity, were not to be informed of his demise till all was over. I refused Harper's offer to prepare my breakfast, telling him that I could obtain a meal in the neighboring village. There was a strange uneasiness in his manner, and I realized, with thoughts and emotions not to be specified in this narrative, that he was anxious to begin his promised vigil beside Sir John's corpse. It would be tedious and unnecessary to detail the funereal afternoon that followed. The heavy sea fog had returned, and I seemed to grope my way through a sodden but unreal world as I sought the nearby town. I succeeded in locating a doctor, and also in securing several men to build the pyre and act as pallbearers. I was met everywhere with an odd taciturnity, and no one seemed willing to comment on Sir John's death or to speak of the dark legendry that was attached to Tremoth Hall. Harper, to my amazement, had proposed that the cremation should take place at once. This, however, proved to be impractical. When all the formalities and arrangements had been completed, the fog turned into a steady, everlasting downpour which rendered impossible the lighting of the pyre, and we were compelled to defer the ceremony. I had promised Harper that I should remain at the hall till all was done, and so it was that I spent a second night beneath that roof of accursed and abominable secrets. The darkness came on betimes. 
After a last visit to the village in which I procured some sandwiches for Harper and myself in lieu of dinner, I returned to the lonely hall. I was met by Harper on the stairs as I ascended to the death chamber. There was an increased agitation in his manner as if something had happened to frighten him. "'I wonder if you'd keep me company tonight, Mr. Caldane,' he said. "'It's a gruesome watch that I'm asking you to share, and it may be a dangerous one. But Sir John would thank you, I am sure.' If you have a weapon of any sort, it will be well to bring it with you. It was impossible to refuse his request, and I assented at once. I was unarmed, so Harper insisted on equipping me with an antique revolver of which he himself carried the mate. Look here, Harper, I said bluntly as we followed the hall to Sir John's chamber. What are you afraid of? He flinched visibly at the question and seemed unwilling to answer. Then, after a moment, he appeared to realize that frankness was necessary. "'It's the thing in the barred room,' he explained. "'You must have heard it, sir. "'We've had the care of it, Sir John and I, these eight and twenty years, "'and we've always feared that it might break out. "'It never gave us much trouble as long as we kept it well fed, "'but for the last three nights it has been scratching at the thick oaken wall "'of Sir John's chamber, which is something it never did before. "'Sir John thought it knew that he was going to die "'and that it wanted to reach his body, being hungry for other food than we had given it.' That's why we must guard him closely tonight, Mr. Caldane. I pray to God that the wall will hold, but the thing keeps on clawing and clawing like a demon, and I don't like the hollowness of the sound, as if the wall were getting pretty thin. Appalled by this confirmation of my own most repugnant surmise, I could offer no rejoinder, since all comment would have been futile. With Harper's open avowal, the abnormality took on a darker and more encroaching shadow, a more potent and tyrannic menace. Willingly would I have forgotten the promised vigil, but this, of course, it was impossible to do. The bestial, diabolic scratching, louder and more frantic than before, assailed my ears as we passed the barred room. All too readily I understood the nameless fear that had impelled the old man to request my company. The sound was inexpressibly alarming and nerve-sapping with its grim, macabre insistence, its intimation of ghoulish hunger. It became even plainer with a hideous tearing vibrancy when we entered the room of death. During the whole course of that funereal day I had refrained from visiting this chamber, since I am lacking in the morbid curiosity which impels many to gaze upon the dead. So it was that I beheld my host for the second and last time. Fully dressed and prepared for the pyre, he lay on the chill white bed whose heavily figured aris-like curtains had been drawn back. The room was lit by several tall tapers arranged on a little table in curious brazen candelabras that were greened with antiquity, but the light seemed to afford only a doubtful, dolorous glimmering in the drear spaciousness and mortuary shadows. Somewhat against my will, I gazed on the dead features and averted my eyes very hastily. I was prepared for the stony pallor and rigor, but not for the full betrayal of that hideous revulsion, that inhuman terror and horror which must have corroded the man's heart through infernal years and which, with almost superhuman control, he had masked from the casual beholder in life. The revelation was too painful, and I could not look at him again. In a sense, it seemed that he was not dead, that he was still listening with agonized attention to the dreadful sounds that might well have served to precipitate the final attack of his malady. There were several chairs dating, I think, like the bed itself, from the seventeenth century. Harper and I seated ourselves near the small table, and between the deathbed and the paneled wall of blackish wood, from which the ceaseless clawing sound appeared to issue. In tacit silence, with drawn and cocked revolvers, we began our ghastly vigil. As we sat and waited, I was driven to picture the unnamed monstrosity, 
and formless or half-formed images of charnel nightmares pursued each other in chaotic succession through my mind. An atrocious curiosity to which I should normally have been a stranger prompted me to question Harper, but I was restrained by an even more powerful inhibition. On his part, the old man volunteered no information or comment whatever, but watched the wall with fear-bright eyes that did not seem to waver in his palsy-nodding head. It would be impossible to convey the unnatural tension, the macabre suspense and baleful expectation of the hours that followed. The woodwork must have been of great thickness and hardness such as would have defied the assaults of any normal creature equipped only with talons or teeth. But in spite of such arguments as these, I thought momentarily to see it crumble inward. The scratching noise went on eternally, and to my febrile fancy, it grew sharper and nearer every instant. At recurrent intervals I seemed to hear a low, eager, dog-like whining, such as a ravenous animal would make when it neared the goal of its burrowing. Neither of us had spoken of what we should do in case the monster should attain its objective, but there seemed to be an unvoiced agreement. However, with a superstitiousness of which I should not have believed myself capable, I began to wonder if the monster possessed enough of humanity in its composition to be vulnerable to mere revolver bullets. To what extent would it display the traits of its unknown and fabulous paternity? I tried to convince myself that such questions and wonderings were patently absurd, but was drawn to them again and again as if by the allurement of some forbidden gulf. The night wore on like the flowing of a dark, sluggish stream, and the tall funeral tapers had burned to within an inch of their verdigris-eaten sockets. It was this circumstance alone that gave me an idea of the passage of time, for I seemed to be drowning in a black eternity, motionless beneath the crawling and seething of blind horrors. I had grown so accustomed to the clawing noise in the woodwork, and the sound had gone on so long that I deemed its ever-growing sharpness and hollowness a mere hallucination, and so it was that the end of our vigil came without apparent warning. Suddenly, as I stared at the wall and listened with frozen fixity, I heard a harsh, splintering sound and saw that a narrow strip had broken loose and was hanging from the panel. Then, before I could collect myself or credit the awful witness of my senses, a large, semicircular portion of the wall collapsed in many splinters beneath the impact of some ponderous body. Mercifully, perhaps, I have never been able to recall with any degree of distinctness the hellish thing that issued from the panel. The visual shock, by its own excess of horror, has almost blotted the details from memory. I have, however, the blurred impression of a huge, whitish, hairless, and semi-quadruped body of canine teeth and a half-human face and long hyena nails at the end of forelimbs that were both arms and legs. A charnel stench preceded the apparition like a breath from the den of some carrion-eating animal, and then with a single nightmare leap, the thing was upon us. I heard the staccato crack of Harper's revolver, sharp and vengeful in the closed room, but there was only a rusty click from my own weapon. Perhaps the cartridge was too old. any rate, it had misfired. Before I could press the trigger again, I was hurled to the floor with terrific violence, striking my head against the heavy base of the little table. A black curtain, spangled with countless fires, appeared to fall upon me and to blot the room from sight. Then all the fires went out and there was only darkness. Again, slowly, I became conscious of flame and shadow, but the flame was bright and flickering and seemed to grow ever more brilliant. Then my dull, doubtful senses were sharply revived and clarified by the acrid odor of burning cloth. The features of the room returned to vision, and I found that I was lying huddled against the overthrown table, gazing toward the deathbed. The guttering candles had been hurled to the floor. One of them was eating a slow circle of fire in the carpet beside me, and another, spreading, had ignited the bed curtains, which were flaring swiftly upward to the great canopy. Even as I lay staring, 
Huge ruddy tatters of the burning fabric fell upon the bed in a dozen places, and the body of Sir John Tremoth was ringed about with starting flames. I staggered heavily to my feet, dazed and giddy with the fall that had hurled me into oblivion. The room was empty, except for the old manservant who lay near the door, moaning indistinctly. The door itself stood open as if someone or something had gone out during my period of unconsciousness. I turned again to the bed with some instinctive, half-formed intention of trying to extinguish the blaze. The flames were spreading rapidly, were leaping higher, but they were not swift enough to veil from my sickened eyes the hands and features, if one could any longer call them such, of that which had been Sir John Tremeth. Of the last horror that had overtaken him, I must forbear explicit mention, and I would that I could likewise avoid the remembrance. All too tardily had the monster been frightened away by the fire. There is little more to tell. Looking back once more as I reeled from the smoke-laden room with Harper in my arms, I saw that the bed and its canopy had become a mass of mounting flames. The unhappy baronet had found in his own death chamber the funeral pyre for which he had longed. It was nearly dawn when we emerged from the doomed manor house. The rain had ceased, leaving a heaven lined with high and dead gray clouds. The chill air appeared to revive the aged manservant, and he stood feebly beside me, uttering not a word as we watched an ever-climbing spire of flame that broke from the somber roof of Tremoth Hall and began to cast a solemn glare on the unkempt hedges. In the combined light of the fireless dawn and the lurid conflagration, we both saw at our feet the semi-human monstrous footprints with their mark of long and canine nails that had been trodden freshly and deeply in the rain-wet soil. They came from the direction of the manor house and ran toward the heath-clad hill that rose behind it. Still, without speaking, we followed the steps. Almost without interruption, they led to the entrance of the ancient family vaults, to the heavy iron door in the hillside that had been closed for a full generation by Sir John Tremeth's order. The door itself swung open, and we saw that its rusty chain and lock had been shattered by a strength that was more than the strength of man or beast. Then, peering within, we saw the clay-touched outline of the unreturning footprints that went downward into mausoleum darkness on the stairs. We were both weaponless, having left our revolvers behind us in the death chamber, but we did not hesitate long. Harper produced a liberal supply of matches, and looking about, I found a heavy billet of water-soaked wood which might serve in lieu of a cudgel. In grim silence, with tacit determination and forgetful of any danger, we conducted a thorough search of the well-nigh interminable vaults, striking match after match as we went on in the musty shadows. The traces of ghoulish footsteps grew fainter as we followed them into those black recesses, and we found nothing anywhere but noisome dampness and undisturbed cobwebs and the countless coffins of the dead. The thing that we sought had vanished utterly as if swallowed up by the subterranean walls. At last we returned to the entrance. There, as we stood blinking in the full daylight with gray and haggard faces, Harper spoke for the first time, saying in his slow, tremulous voice, Many years ago, soon after Lady Agatha's death, Sir John and I searched the vaults from end to end, but we could find no trace of the thing we suspected. Now, as then, it is useless to seek. There are mysteries which, God helping, will never be fathomed. We know only that the offspring of the vaults has gone back to the vaults. There may it remain. Silently, in my shaken heart, I echoed his last words and his wish.
All right, and that wraps up The Nameless Offspring by Clark Ashton Smith. I certainly hope you enjoyed this reading, and I hope you are enjoying the show. Please uh, come back next week for the next story we're going to do, which at this point in time, I have no idea what it is. So uh, I will decide at some point in the week and uh, start recording that next weekend. And uh, thank you all for listening. Please leave a rating and a review on iTunes or podcast catcher of your choice. And uh, other than that, da-da-da-da-da-da, here's the bloops. No one was to be present at the ceremony except Harker and the Harper. Harker's the guy from Dracula, and I don't have to do Dracula anymore. I did that a year and a half ago. If you're listening to the blooper reel, go back to October of 2018, and you can listen to the entire novel of Dracula, read by me and my wife, plus the 45-minute blooper reel. You're welcome.